All right, great to see you this morning. I'd like to uh, introduce our study in the Gospel of Mark by reading with you a portion of Psalm 107. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for a number of months, and uh, we are still going to be in chapter 4 today, finishing up chapter 4. But we'd like to begin with a reading today, a portion of Psalm 107. The author of Psalm 107 is not named, uh, but it is a beautiful song with great challenges and exhortations. And if you're not familiar with the term exhortation or exactly what it means to exhort, simply means to cheer you on, uh, to, uh, to build you up, to encourage you. And there are a great many challenges and exhortations in uh, this, this beautiful psalm that we will take a look at just a, just a couple of pieces of it this morning. There are actually seven stanzas, as you might call them, in, uh, in this psalm, marked out in the New King James Version by a space between what appears to be paragraphs. We are just going to read stanza number five, uh, which begins in verse 23. Let those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. They see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of of the elders. That is stanza number five. In this powerful event that we're going to examine in the Gospel of Mark this morning, we are going to see some men going down to the sea in ships. They're going to see the works of the Lord. They're going to see His wonders in the deep. And we're going to see a very literal example of verses 28 to 30. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so He guides them to their desired haven. We will see uh, exactly a uh, beautiful and perfect example of, of that. Uh, those two verses. In the end, of course, they're going to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. So if you turn now to Mark chapter 4, We'll finish off the chapter today. We've preached three sermons of recent weeks on the parable of the soil. And uh, we're moving on today uh, in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4 up to the end of the chapter. This well-known event, every Sunday school kid who's ever spent uh, much time at church has probably heard it. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is a pivotal moment in the history or in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, I believe, because it reveals to the disciples a side of Jesus that they have not seen as yet. And we'll explain that in a few moments. So let's read the text, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 
35. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Sea of Galilee, as we usually call it, is not a saltwater sea, which is the way we use the word sea. It's actually a, a freshwater lake known in the Old Testament as the Lake of Chinnereth or Chinneroth. It's mentioned in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and 1 Kings. And of course it's known throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, as the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, or the Lake of Gennesaret, as the Greek Dr. Luke calls it. Uh, today in Israel it's known as Lake Kinneret. Uh, but to us, of course, we think of it by its usual name in the Gospels, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it is the lowest elevation freshwater lake on planet Earth. It is 682 feet below sea level. It isn't a low, as low as the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. But the Dead Sea, of course, is not really fresh water. It's so highly mineralized, you can float on top of it rather easily. They claim that the Dead Sea is nine times saltier than the ocean. But the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's a unique and interesting body of water. Uh, the lake itself is about 150 feet deep. It's fed by underground springs, some of them hot springs. And the Jordan River flows in from the north. The Jordan River is fed by mountain snow melt, mostly from Mount Hermon, up on the border with Lebanon, which peaks out at about 9,200 feet. So the snow melt from the peak of Mount Hermon is flowing 10,000 feet down in elevation to the Sea of Galilee. So you got snow melt flowing in from the north, warm springs feeding the Sea of Galilee from underneath, and it creates a very unique body of water. Uh, there's a high algae content at certain depths of the lake, so it makes for a fantastic fishery. The Sea of Galilee produces a lot of fish and was a tremendous resource for ancient Israel and for modern Israel. I have read now even in our modern day that 50% of the water for the nation of Israel today comes from the lake, even though the lake is only 13 miles north-south and 8 miles east-west. It's surrounded by mountains. On the west and the northwest, the mountains are about 1,500 feet above sea level. On the northeast and the east, they rise to almost 3,000 feet above sea level. So the Sea of Galilee sits down in a basin, surrounded by mountains, and that fact makes the Sea of Galilee subject to very severe winds at certain times. In the summer, the winds come from the east, blowing in off the desert. Afternoons are kind of breezy, like they are around here quite a bit. 
the cold winter winds come from the north and the northwest and sweep down across the warmer water of the lake and can create some pretty nasty storms. Gale force winds and three to five foot swells are not uncommon and it can actually get quite a bit worse than that. So that's the place where this happens. This could not have been any better of a place for the Lord Jesus to demonstrate his power over the natural world, which is exactly what he does. And I want to group our thoughts around three themes this morning as we look at this short text. The the humanity of the Lord Jesus, the deity of the Lord Jesus, and the fear of the disciples. You see, Jesus needs to escape the crowd for a while. He is exhausted. So he tells the disciples to launch the boat and go to the other side of the lake. The fishing boats of Galilee were not large boats. If all the fishing nets were out of them, you could probably get 10 or 12 people in them, maybe. But apparently there were a number of the disciples who were traveling along. So so Mark rather says that other little boats were traveling with them. Uh, When Luke records this, he says they were sailing along uh, rather than rowing, so there must have been a light breeze. The water was basically calm. Nobody was worried about crossing the lake. It was evening. The afternoon winds would be slowing down just like they do around here as it gets dark. You didn't get much stormy weather after dark usually, so away they went, and Jesus is so weary that he basically collapses into a deep sleep. He was lying on the stern of the, uh, on a seat at the stern of the boat with his head on a cushion. That was normal. Fishermen would often put out their nets in the nighttime hours when the fish came to the surface to feed. Then they'd take a short nap, then pull in their nets and see what they caught. So far, so good. Just a normal evening sailing trip across the Sea of Galilee with uh, their beloved rabbi kind of crashing in the stern of the boat. Even though we know what's about to happen, don't let it escape your notice that Jesus was exhausted. You see, he was not only fully God, he was fully human. And when he left the glories of heaven and he came to earth through the miracle of the virgin birth, he took on all the limitations of a human body. He did this voluntarily, he did this willingly, because in order to die for the sins of humans, he had to be a human. He had to be one of us, yet without sin. The perfect, sinless human was coming to die for ruined, sinful humans. He was not only fully God, he was fully man, but without sin. Those of you who have been with us for several weeks, as we looked at her with us several weeks ago, and we studied Satan's temptation, temptation of Jesus, you may remember that it appears that Satan was not really trying to get Jesus to sin, which he knew was impossible. He was trying to taunt Jesus into laying aside his humanity. He, may, he looks at Jesus, he says, you haven't eaten in 40 days. Why are you doing this to yourself? You're the son of God. There are rocks all over the place. Just turn a few of them into bread. The problem's solved. You're going to get all the kingdoms of the world one day. You're the son of God. If you just bow down to me, you can have them right now. I know what you're going to have to go through in a couple of years in order to redeem this planet. Why, do you, why put yourself through all that? You're, you're the Son of God. Just, just forget all this human stuff and just go back to being what you were in the glories of heaven. Do, do you know what these ridiculous humans are going to do to you in your human body? I know that you do. Why do you want to be one of them anyway? They're weak. They're fragile. They're as dumb as sheep. 
I can get them to do just about anything if I dangle the right thing in front of them. They are so self-centered and self-focused and self-indulged, it is so easy to trick them that it's laughable. Why do you want to even be one of them? Just go back to being God and forget all this human nonsense. And of course, Jesus refused because he had willingly taken on the limitations of a human body so he could die for our sin as the perfect substitute for sinful humans. And here we see the perfect example of our Savior accepting the limitations of a human body. He was so physically exhausted that he is literally sleeping through a hurricane in the back of a little fishing boat that's in the process of being swamped. That is physical exhaustion. I've been exhausted many times. As we age, we get weary a lot more easily, as many of you know. I do sleep pretty well most of the time, however. In fact, I saw a, co a coffee mug the other day at Hobby Lobby that I thought of getting for my wife. It said, I don't want to sleep like a baby. I just want to sleep like my husband. So I, I do sleep pretty well most of the time. But I can tell you, I'm, I'm not sure that I have ever been so exhausted that I could sleep through a hurricane in the back of a small boat. That tells us how much Jesus was physically pouring into his ministry. How hard he was serving. How diligent, how serious, how focused he was about preaching the word and ministering to people. He was exhausted. See, Jesus was fully human and he accepted those limitations for you and for me. But then the unexpected happened. Not unexpected to Jesus, but certainly for the disciples. Mark says there was a great windstorm that arose. Great is the Greek word mega. In fact, Matthew uses the phrase seismos mega. Seismic, meaning it's just this huge earthquake-like rumbling. It was, a, it was an incredible mega storm. It was a little unusual for nighttime. Even here on the east slopes of the Rockies, the winds generally decrease after dark, even on the windier days. But here this mega storm roars in in the dark. The waves are so huge that it's swamping the boat. They can't bail fast enough. These guys are not, they are not novices in a boat. We know that at least four of them were commercial fishermen, perhaps others. This is what they do. These boats probably belong to them. And as soon as the wind hits, they jump into action. Even if a few fellows were not experts on the water, I guarantee you that the commercial fishermen were giving orders. Grab the rudder with both hands. Lower the sail. Tie it off. Grab the oars. Drop the anchor off the back of the boat with a short rope to help keep the boat turned into the wind. Hang onto that rudder and steer into the wind. Grab the buckets. Bail water. Don't stand up. Stay low in the boat. Bail faster. And as they look over at their beloved rabbi, he is still fast asleep. Say, what? How can he sleep through this? Somebody wake him up. And they cry out to him over the sound of this howling wind. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? Which brings us to our second thought. The deity of Jesus Christ. He's not only fully human, he is fully God. Jesus stands up on the stern of the boat, rebukes the wind, and speaks to the water. Interestingly, the word rebuke 
means to denounce, to warn in a threatening tone, to, to, to command. And it very interestingly is, is the same word used to describe when Jesus was speaking to the demons. Jesus speaks to the wind in the same way that he speaks to the demons that he's casting out. He rebukes it. That leads some Bible students to wonder if perhaps the wind was satanically caused. <clears throat> That's certainly a possibility. Perhaps we're back to this humanity of Jesus issue that we just discussed regarding the devil's temptation of Jesus. He wants to be human? Okay, let's see how well he can swim. He wants to be human? Let's see how well he can breathe underwater. Maybe I can kill him while he's human and wreck this plan of salvation thing. I can kill a bunch of his followers at the same time. That would shut down this whole thing. That's certainly a possibility. But of course, we also know this was a God-ordained storm. This was a test for the disciples. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what he was going to do. The disciples had no clue about what was about to happen. I believe that I've mentioned to you in time past that the Gospel of John chapter 1, the book of Colossians chapter 1, and the book of Hebrews chapter 1, in those three places, the Creator is clearly identified as being God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Serious and brilliant Bible students have searched through the Bible. They have come to the conclusion that in the unfolding plans of God, it appears that God the Father designs the plans, God the Son executes or carries out those plans, and God the Holy Spirit communicates the plan to the world of men. That is, He relates it to us, makes it effective for us. You see that very clearly in the issue of salvation and forgiveness. God the Father made the plan. God the Son came to earth to carry it out. It is God the Holy Spirit that communicates that plan and makes it effective for us. And as you study the theology of, of creation, you see it there as well. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually carried out the creating of this universe as we see in John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. So in this passage, the natural world, the created world, is getting a little out of hand. It's under the curse of sin, it's getting a little unruly, and the Creator, the Master, the Sovereign Ruler of the universe, He puts it back in its place with a spoken word. Just as He spoke the word and brought this world into existence, now He speaks the word and He straightens out the created world. Stop! Hush! Be still! And just like that, Jesus Christ shuts down millions of, of horsepower of wind energy. Just like that. He, he immediately commands billions of gallons of water to stop sloshing around and swamping the boats. And it happens right now. A great storm becomes a great calm because Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% human. He is the Creator who is in the process of subjecting Himself to everything necessary to also be our Savior. But the disciples are now seeing a side of Jesus that they have never seen before. Jesus was healing all kinds of diseases. He was resolving all kinds of medical issues. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was totally confounding the Pharisees with his knowledge of the Old Testament. 
He was preaching soul-stirring, challenging messages with an authority that no one had ever seen before. And I have no doubt that all of his followers, all of the disciples who were with him in these boats, I have no doubt that they fully believed that Jesus was a man who'd come from God. I think they fully believed he had the power of God on his life. He had prophet-like authority on his life. They knew he was uniquely different from everyone and was no doubt the Messiah. But after this terrifying event in the night on the lake, they saw that he was actually God in the flesh. And it scared the daylights out of them. We know that because of the two different words used for fear in our text. Jesus says to them there in verse, uh, in verse 40, He says, Why are you fellows so frightened? After all this time, you still don't have faith? You still aren't trusting me? And Jesus uses a word there when He says, Why are you fearful? Why are you so fearful? He uses a word that means timid or cowardly or terrified or frightened. He's basically telling him, hey guys, this, this was a test. This was an unexpected pop quiz and all of you just failed. You see, there were at least three good reasons why none of the men in the ship should have been terrified, even though the situation appeared to be life-threatening. To begin with, they had the promise of Jesus that they were going to the other side. He said to them, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. When this storm came, they were not living in disobedience. They were living in obedience. They were doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They, they had His promise, we're going to the other side. Nothing can stop the working out of God's plans. He didn't promise an easy trip, but He did guarantee uh, a, a, an arrival at their destination when He said, let's go to the other side. Secondly, the Lord Himself was with them there. So what was there to be terrified about? They'd already seen dozens of demonstrations of his power so they should have had complete confidence that he could handle the situation but as i just mentioned i don't think that they quite got it yet as to exactly who jesus christ actually was they knew he was like a prophet they knew he had divine power they knew the presence of god was with him they knew all those things but i don't think they quite actually come to grips with precisely who jesus was but he was there with them there's no need to be afraid and finally they could see that jesus was obviously perfectly at peace he was sleeping jesus slept in the storm because he was truly secure in the will of god so he looks at them after he rebukes the wind and everything becomes calm he says why are you so frightened you still don't have faith? You still don't believe? How often in the trials of life are, are, are you and I just like the disciples? And we tend to cry out in our problems, Lord, don't you care? Of course He cares. He arose, He rebuked the storm, immediately there was a great calm. But Jesus didn't stop with the calming of the storm because you know what? The, the greatest danger was not the wind or the waves. The greatest danger was the unbelief in the hearts of the disciples. And if you forget everything else I tell you today, please remember this one sentence. Our greatest problems are not around us. They are within us. Let me tell you that again. 
Our greatest problems are not around us. They are within us. That explains why Jesus gently rebuked them and He called them, You men of little faith. Why do you have no faith? Why are you so frightened? You see, it was their unbelief that caused their fear. And it was their fear that made them question whether Jesus really cared. You may remember the verse or be familiar with the verse in Hebrews 3 that says we must beware of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Hebrews 3.12 We all struggle with that. Even we who know Christ. Even we have been walking with the Lord for many, many years. We struggle with having this heart of unbelief. So we pour out our heart to the Lord. Why is this happening, Lord? Don't, don't you care? Well, of course He cares. And He is bringing about His will for you, and He's bringing about His will for me. But our problems are not in our circumstances. Our problems are within us. Our problems, our greatest problem is not around us. It's what's going on inside us. It's not, a, it's not our circumstances. It's our reaction to our circumstances. It's our response to our circumstances. That's where the trouble lies. Things happen, bad things happen, difficulties come to us and we say, Oh, why is this going on, Lord? What's going on here, Lord? Why is this happening? On and on we say, Don't you care? I mean, and we have this unspoken thought that our life should be perfect. And we should always have money and we should always have health. And everything should always go smoothly. And our kids should never give us problems. And, and, and our parents should never disappoint us. And, and, and everything should just roll along like, a, like normal. And life should be good because I'm following Jesus. And we know in our minds that the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. The Bible never says anything of the sort. And yet we still have this unspoken expectation that everything's just going to roll along smoothly because we're following Jesus. You see, our greatest problem is not around us. It's within us. But when verse 41 says that they feared exceedingly, it is a different word. It is the Greek word phobos, from which we get our English word phobia. And exceedingly, the word exceedingly is a repeat of the word mega. So he's saying they had a, that when, when they feared, when they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? Mark says they were having a mega panic attack. They, they, they were realizing that they were in the presence of the God-man. And when they began to realize the overwhelming awesomeness of who they were traveling with, they looked at each other and like, what just happened who, who is this and I kind of picture this in my mind I always try to picture what's going on in my mind as they're out here I mean there have been just waves washing over the sides of the boats these guys are bailing like crazy they're hanging onto the rudder for dear life you always try to steer into the wind because if you get sideways to the wind and the waves it'll just tip you right over so you steer into the wind and try to ride the wind and, 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 and the water's coming over and the disciples are soaking wet and all of a sudden Jesus stands up and he says stop, hush, be quiet and boom it's over Snap of a finger. And I can see the side. He's kind of standing here in the boat. And he's got his bailing bucket. And the water's dripping out of his beard. And, 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 and he's, he's trying to... He's trying, and all of a sudden, it's over. And he's standing here sort of looking around with this... They're all looking at each other like, what, what, 
what just happened? I mean, whoa. I mean, I mean, he still got the bucket in his hand. And Jesus said, how come you guys are so scared? Don't you have any faith? And they're standing here with this wide-eyed, jaw-dropping, staring at Jesus. Who is this? You see, the disciples knew from the Old Testament that only God can command the wind and waves. We just read it in Psalm 107. And there are many, many, many other places in the Old Testament that teach exactly the same thing. And Jesus just did that. He just commanded the wind and the waves. In an awe-inspiring, life-threatening circumstance, He just, with a spoken word, commanded the wind and and the waves. And the implications of what just happened to the disciples, I believe, totally boggled their minds. They are just beginning to see and understand who Jesus actually is. And you know, it's much the same way today. People attend church, they read the Bible, they know some Bible answers to lots of questions. They've been all around Jesus, but down in their souls, they fail to see and understand exactly who Jesus really is, just as the disciples failed to see it in this story. He is the Creator. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Sustainer. He will one day be the Judge of all the earth, and He can be ours. He can be our Savior. Our Redeemer, our Father, our God. Yet so many people out there today, so many people who sit in churches and can quote you a few Bible verses, they, they, they fear the world. They fear what the world can take from them. They fear what the world can do to them. They fear what the world will say to them. But their fear of God is actually pretty weak because, because their fear of the world dominates them. Here the disciples were getting a little taste of what it means to actually be in the presence of of the God-man. And it scared them to death. He says they feared greatly, exceedingly, and said, who is this? You know, you and I have to have an eternal mindset. I've said to you many, many times before that this world is not all there is. Praise God for that. This life is temporary. Eternity is forever. So I challenge you, stop living for this life and start living for our Savior. Stop focusing on this world and focus on eternity. No matter what storm comes to us in this life, if we are truly in Christ, then Romans chapter 8 is for us. Turn there if you would. Let me wind up our thoughts today with reading that section. Romans chapter 8. We come back to this section of Scripture periodically. Great to, to remind ourselves of it again. Just the last few verses of chapter 8 of Romans, we're going to begin to read in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... And let me pause there just a moment to remind you, as the Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
he is not saying that there will never be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite. If we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, we will experience those things. But he is saying, can any of that separate us from the love of God? As it is written, he says in verse 36, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. All these things, kind of things are happening to the people of God all of the time, all over the world. Yet in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this great thought, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's back up there just a second. It says none of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in the God-man, Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you truly in Christ? If you are, then live for Him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Not a storm in, in regarding your financial life. Not a storm regarding your health. Not a storm regarding the loss of a loved one. Not a storm regarding anything that you can list. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ if you are truly in Christ. If you aren't in Christ or you're not sure, then bow before Him and confess your sinfulness and receive His forgiveness. Don't be afraid because Jesus is always near. Let's pray. Father, in this simple and familiar story, we are reminded of so many incredible implications for us. For we who know you as our Savior, we have absolutely no reason to fear this world or to fear our circumstances or to fear anything that happens in this life. We can trust you with our futures. We can trust you not only with our eternity, but with our day-to-day -day living in this world. Lord, I am so grateful that we can come to you, that we can, that we can bow before you, that we can submit to you every day, that we can know that your presence is with us, it is real. And when the disciples ask that question, who is this? We know. You are fully God and fully man. You are the God-man, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing too hard for you. May we, Lord, be, be obedient to the very best of our ability. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.